Good morning. It's good to see you. Happy Advent to everyone. I don't know if that's a saying or not. Yes, it is. is it? Yes. It is Happy Advent. Uh, from now on, it is a saying. Um, so unfortunately, my family, the rest of my family couldn't make it today. Um, Zach's a little under the weather. And, um, you know, I volunteered to stay at home, but Liz didn't want to preach. So here I am. <laughs> so happy Advent to all of you. Um, just a reminder of what Advent is, what this season represents. During Advent, we celebrate and remember by looking back to Christ's first Advent, first coming at Christmas. But we also, in our hearts, we look forward to Christ's second Advent, his second coming when he comes again in glory and in power. And last week, Chris led us in in teaching us what it means to to wait, what it means to be ready for the Lord. And today, we're going to talk about peace and we're going to talk about faith. And the theme of the second week is peace and faith. And so how are we to live out our faith as we wait on the Lord? That's our question for this morning. And um, our passage for today comes from Matthew chapter 3. It's too long for me to put on the screen. So if you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3, <clears throat> we are going to read through Matthew chapter 3 together. So turn in your phones. <laughs> Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea, and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love, in him I am well pleased. Let's pray. Let's pray. God, as we gather together and let your word wash over us and our hearts, God, I pray for for you to move. I pray for distractions to be cast aside. I pray for 
um, doubts to be cast aside, for any worries, God, to be cast aside, even tiredness and sickness to be cast aside in your name, God. We pray that, God, your word would come alive. It would speak to us today. We are yours. We surrender this time to you, God. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. So we read through the entirety of Matthew chapter 3, and I wanted to give you a context for what this is. Matthew chapter 3 is basically one of the first chapters of Matthew, the beginning before the beginning of Jesus's earthly ministry here. And I read through this whole passage and I actually wrote a different sermon, but I could not get this verse out of my mind. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. I wrote an entire sermon. I'm not kidding you. I deleted it. No one will ever hear it. And it's fine. It wasn't that good. So this one's better. Trust me. <laughs> um, so I wrote an entire sermon about the entirety of Matthew chapter three, but over this week, I kept coming back to this verse. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Oftentimes, I think of this phrase. I think of, you know, some kind of strange Christian with a sign, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near, on the street, in the city. No one's listening to them, right? You've, you've probably seen people like that on the street before. And even as a Christian, I'm like, nope, that's not me. But this week, when I read this, something about it spoke to me, and I want to share that with you. So we're going to go through just this one verse together this morning, right? if, that's, if that's okay with you guys. So the first word in this verse is repent, repent. And the person giving this word was John. And if you remember in um, what we just read, John chapter, Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist was a very eccentric and interesting man, um, but it's eccentric and interesting from our point of view. From a Jewish point of view, everything that John was doing was kind of expected. You know why? Because there, the advent of a Messiah, the coming of a Messiah, meant that there had to be a forerunner for the Messiah. In all of the prophets and all of the things that um, uh, that the Jewish people were expecting, this was actually one of the things that they were also expecting. Not just the Messiah to come, but someone to come and prepare the way for him. And many of them thought it was gonna be literally Elijah, because Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament times who was taken up to heaven, he never died. And so they thought that Elijah, because he never died, he would come back again and he would be the forerunner for the Messiah, the king that's coming to set up God's earthly kingdom. So Elijah, he was also a kind of eccentric and interesting character. He lived in the wilderness. He dressed up in fur and had a leather belt. And what do we see John, how he's described by Matthew? He was in the wilderness. He wore fur. He had a leather belt. He was kind of this interesting, eccentric character. He was this picture of the foreigner. In fact, um, Matthew is the gospel to the Jewish people. And throughout, throughout um, this, the first even three chapters, there's all these different Old Testament scriptures. The one in chapter three is about Isaiah chapter 3, there's one who goes ahead, this forerunner that goes ahead. John is this forerunner. And he was fulfilling the expectations that the Jewish people would have. A forerunner, a forerunner would come, followed by the Messiah. And so, you know, he, he's an outdoorsy man. I can't not relate. Um, but his, uh, he, he wasn't just like homeless, outdoorsy, I don't want to be in the system type of person. He was actually eating locusts, which was not just anything he'd find. It was the food of the poor, 
okay? He was, it was the food of the poor. He wasn't just dressed in any certain way because he killed an animal, he's outdoorsy. He was dressed this way because it fulfilled the expectation of what the Jewish people were looking for in a forerunner for the Messiah. So all of this points to Jesus, all of it. His whole ministry points to Jesus. He relates to the poor. He's in the wilderness. He is a forerunner for the Messiah. But also what is unique is his actual ministry that he was carrying out of baptism. And why is this unique? Why is this so interesting? Because we think of baptism, and we just had an awesome baptismal service here, right here, um, where I very much said a a blasphemous thing. (laughs) Those who were there will never forget it, and I will not repeat it again. (laughs) But (laughs) um, baptism for us in, in the modern day church era is very normal. But for the Jews, it was not normal nor expected for a Jew to be baptized. Why? Because they were Jewish. They didn't need to be baptized. Baptism was reserved for people converting to Judaism. Basically, if you were not Jewish, and then you encountered the Jewish God, Yahweh, and you wanted to become a follower of this God, you would have to be baptized. That's basically why baptism existed. And so... John was baptizing Jews. It was weird. This is probably one of the only times recorded that Jews were baptized. Why does this matter? Why does this matter? John's ministry was in preparation for Christ, right? And for the people to be able to receive Christ, they had to understand why they are special, why they are the people of God. It's not because their ancestors were chosen. It's because of repentance that they are the people of God. John's message to the Jews is, your heritage cannot save you. And his message was actually nearly identical to the message that Jesus proclaimed in the next chapter. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's also identical to the message that Jesus told his disciples to go out and preach. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent for the kingdom of heaven. So what is repentance? We're going to look at this word right now. In Greek, it looks like that. In English, it looks like that on the right. Metanoeo. To change one's way of life as the result of a complete change of thought and attitude. Metanoeo. In Greek, to repent is really to change your thinking. But in Hebrew, to repent is actually to change the way you act. So to combine the two together, this is what the Gospel of Matthew is getting at repentance, to change one's way of life as a result of a complete change of thought and attitude. And um, during our series uh, in, in the book of Judges, I actually kind of taught a little bit, very briefly about repentance, and I want to kind of go into that more so now, because repentance for us can oftentimes be just feeling sorry, right? And in the book of Judges, we found that pe- the people of Israel They were in a continual cycle of, quote-unquote, repentance. But I don't think it was real repentance. Why? Because nothing changed. In fact, everything got worse and worse and worse. There's a downward cycle of sin and brokenness, not repentance. True repentance contains these four things. Reflection, introspection, communication, and growth. The first is reflection. Reflection. Basically, what do I know of God? Who is God to me? What are the characteristics that I know of God? 
Who does God reveal himself to be through his law? Who does he reveal himself to be through his word, even through speaking and talking to us, through the gospel and through the Holy Spirit? Who is God? As you reflect on who is God, this idea of repentance is going to come up more and more. It begins with, who is God to you? Is God holy? Is God just? Is God loving? Is he gracious? Who is God to you? The next is introspection. How have I lived? What have I done? In what ways have I acted or believed counter to the character of God? How have I acted or believed or lived in a way that is in line with the character of God? Is God holy? Is God holy? God is holy. Yes, I know God is holy. Have I lived a holy life? Is God loving? Yes, God is loving. Have I lived a loving life? Is God just? Yes, God is just. Have I lived for justice? How have I lived? Next is communication. Have I asked God to forgive me? Have I talked to God real, in a real way? Not just a cry of pain, not just a complaint, but it's a, a way to talk to God, for asking, to ask him to see you and hear you. Do you see me, God? Do you see me? And then lastly, this is where the book of Judges points where they were missing, points to where they were missing. Growth. How will I change? How will I change? It's a new direction to follow the commands of God. Now, the problem with the people of God, especially in the book of Judges, was they just want forgiveness. They wanted God to fix their problems. They wanted God to rescue them but they didn't want to truly repent and grow. They didn't want to change the way that they lived. That's why it's these four steps of repentance that are so crucial if we do not want to find ourselves living like the Israelites did in the book of Judges. To reflect, to continually meditate on the character and nature of God. How do we do that? I mean, coming to church is great. Together we reflect on who God is through worship, through scripture reading, through the message, everything. And I hope that even more so that we could testify to one another as well, pray with one another about who, and declare, and just, you know, declare who God is to one another, one-on-one. -on -one. Introspection, how have I lived? Some of you might take a journal. It's good. It's really good. Some of the new fad in journaling is called bullet journaling. It's basically like lazy journaling but pretty journaling, too, because you can write like very calligraphy-like and draw and stuff. Anyways, if you're on Instagram, you've seen it. Um, but whatever works for you. For me, oftentimes, I'll, I'll pen songs, and these songs will be, they'll capture a season of my faith. Um, I remember during the time when we lost um, someone close to us, I penned a song of lament. And I look back on that song like, wow, God, that was a real, that was real. That was, that was feeling all of those things. The first, the first line of that song actually was, feels like I've lost too much, now you've got my attention. Right? And uh, I, feel, I just, you know, that's a real, that's a real line there. It's just, I, you've got my attention, God. I'm in so much pain. That's just the way that I reflect. That's just the way that I introspect. Find what works for you. Maybe for you it's painting. I've seen some of you paint. You know, and I've seen some of you draw, you, you can introspect in different ways. It's not just journaling. It's not just writing. It's not just singing. Find what works for you 
and then communicate to God. This part, there's no other option. You have to talk to God. Talk to him. Ask him to search your heart. Ask him to speak to you. And finally, in his power, ask him to help you to grow. That is crucial. That is crucial. We don't just ask for forgiveness. We ask for a new direction to grow. You know, um, there's supposed to be a change. And I have to, you know, the caveat is, even the great Apostle Paul said, the things that I want to do, I, I know that I should do, I can't do. Just in my own flesh, I, I can't do it. Guys, we will always be needing to repent continually. Even if we grow, even if we grow, especially if we grow, we'll see more of our need to repent. So, you know, there's a choice. We keep on sinning so that grace may abound, or we just declare victory over our sin, right? And so we do the work to obey the commands of God by repenting, all right? Repent. So that's the first word of this verse, repent. The second phrase is, for the kingdom of heaven. So quick show of hands. What is the kingdom of heaven? Anyone want to teach right now? No one. Okay, that's what I thought. <laughs> so the kingdom of heaven, to me as a Christian, I like know it. I don't really know it. It's like a Christian phrase, a churchy phrase, but like, what? What does it mean? What is it? And so I actually did a huge deep dive. I want to kind of, kind of bring us on this today because kingdom of heaven, if we actually think about it, is so important. It's the first and only message that John gives. It's the first message that Christ gives. It's the message that Christ gives his apostles to give. The kingdom of heaven. It's so important. And we go through our Christian walk, we like, what the heck is this? I just accept some surface level understanding of it. But it has such deep, deep implications for us today. Just staying within the gospel of Matthew, this book, this chapter, we see the phrase kingdom of heaven over 30 times kingdom of heaven, specifically, 30 times, 32 times exactly. And it was the central teaching of Jesus and his disciples. Namely, they were trying to teach what does the kingdom of heaven look like? And number two, how does one get into the kingdom of heaven? Who is welcome in the kingdom of heaven? So if we trace the kingdom of heaven, this phrase, this theme, this idea, in the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to get a very complete overview of Jesus' entire ministry from the beginning to end. So what is it? What is the kingdom of heaven? The word here, kingdom, is basileu, to rule as a king. So the first thing that we understand is kingdom of heaven is not about going to heaven itself. It's not about just heaven, but it's about the rule of God. It's the rule of heaven. And it's, in fact, scholars have said that kingdom of heaven is, a, is kind of a um, pious way to say kingdom of God. The Jewish people held God's name in such high esteem that they did not want to utter God's name. And so instead of saying kingdom of God, they said kingdom of heaven, right? So it's the same thing. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. Kingdom here refers not to the land, but to the rule. It refers to the reign. Um, and so what is the kingdom of heaven? You guys ready for this? It's going to be a lot. Bear with me. All right, so... <laughs> this is just one slide. I have four. Okay, so <laughs> we're going to go through this very quickly, very, very quickly. Do not worry. So the first, um, the first teaching on the kingdom of heaven is found in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Next. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Five, if, therefore, if anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So just these first five references pulled straight from Scripture in order tells us who is in the kingdom of heaven. Who is in, all right? Next, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That's actually a Jesus is teaching after he hears about the faith of a centurion, a Gentile, meaning that the kingdom of heaven is no longer just tied to the Jewish people and the land, but from the east and the west, everyone is welcome into the kingdom of heaven. 11, truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people have been raiding it. I always wonder what that meant. Basically what it means is the kingdom of heaven, because it is coming near, means that there's going to be opposition to the coming of the kingdom of heaven and its power. Right? There's going to be opposition. Next, there's more, guys. We're only in chapter 13. <laughs> You're not with me. <laughs> he replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. Jesus told another parable. So this is where we get into the teaching of the kingdom of heaven. It's kind of silly, but Jesus' main teaching, the, main, the way that he taught everyone about the kingdom of heaven is through secrets. It's through parables. Basically, only those that were chosen to understand could understand. Only the disciples could understand. Everyone who opposed the kingdom of heaven, opposed Jesus' ministry, could not understand. And so we get a huge, you know, just chain of parables about the kingdom of heaven and what it is. It's like good seed sown in a field. It's like a mustard seed. It's like yeast. It's like treasure hidden in a field. It's like when someone finds a pearl or it's like someone when they catch a lot of fish. All of these things signify different aspects of what the kingdom of heaven is, who, what it looks like, and who is allowed to go in. Next, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. There's authority. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? This is already in Matthew chapter 18, pretty far along in Jesus' ministry. Disciples are, again, clueless. Jesus has been teaching about who is great in the kingdom of heaven from the beginning, and they do not understand. And so, what does he say? And he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He's basically laying the smack down on his disciples. These children know more than you who have been following me around for three years. Um, then more parables. Therefore, let the, king, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. That one is about forgiveness. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. And Jesus said to disciples, truly it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. So wealth, earthly possessions can hinder us from entering the kingdom of heaven as well. Lastly, 
This is our last slide here. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. It's like a wedding banquet. And there's woe to those who oppose Jesus' teachings. And then last week we learned about the oil and the lamps and what it means to wait and be ready for the kingdom of heaven. So, that's all the references. I cut out like three, but those are all the references to kingdom of heaven in the gospel of Matthew. What is it? What is the kingdom of heaven? Firstly, it is the sovereign rule of God. Summarizing here, the sovereign rule of God, meaning that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is where God rules. It is where God rules. It's not bound to land. It is not bound to a country. What it is bound to is believers. It's bound to people. Is God sovereign in our hearts, in our lives, in our church. It is the sovereign rule of God. Next, it is subversive and unassuming. It's like mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. But it yields great, great produce. It's like yeast. You work it in to the dough and it causes it to rise. It's like a small little yeast. It's subversive, but it's of immense worth. It's like a, when someone finds buried treasure he finds buried treasure. He sells everything to buy that land and he digs up that treasure because he knows how much that treasure is worth. It's like a pearl. Someone who's been looking for pearls their whole lives, they're looking for pearls. They find a pearl of great worth. That is what the kingdom of heaven is like. But it is also a kingdom built upon forgiveness and also it's a kingdom where forgiveness is expected of the people inside. The parable of the master and the servant. The master wanted to settle their accounts with all the servants the servant's like, oh my goodness, the master wants his money, and he starts beating up people to try to get his money. But then the master's like, what did you do? Why did you beat up people? I was going to forgive you because you were so cruel to them. Now you're going to, you know, get it from me. That's the idea of this kingdom being built upon forgiveness. That's the kingdom of God. This is, you know, Jesus spoke in parables for a reason. It's because for us, even today, theologians, all of all time, they've, they've meditated and studied. They spent their entire lives thinking about this one concept, this kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. No one can fully understand. There's a mystery to it. So above all else, there's this mystery to the kingdom of heaven, about what it is. But what has been made clear is very clear. What has been made clear is very clear. Who is welcome? The poor in spirit, right? The poor in spirit are welcome in the kingdom of heaven. Those who are persecuted because of righteousness, they are welcome in the kingdom of heaven. The ones who have a childlike faith in God, if you're like a little child, you're welcome in the kingdom of heaven. And then the righteous ones who obey and are prepared and keep watch for the coming king. But there are those who oppose the kingdom. There are those who oppose Jesus' ministry. And woe to those people. Woe to those people. You know, um, as I was prepping for this, um, this message, this is, this is where it gets tough for us, especially if I go back a little bit. Um, you know, just... When, it, when Jesus says it's tough for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, that's the message for us, guys. You know, that's the message for us. And there's no way to sugarcoat it. 
We live in a very wealthy, wealthy, affluent part of the country. We live in a very affluent country, let alone this affluent part of the country. And so for us, if we just gloss over this, that it is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to fit through an eye of a needle, what does that mean for us today? What does that mean? I'm not trying to say, like, if you make X amount of money, then you're not going to go into the kingdom of heaven. Absolutely not. What I'm saying is, if you make X amount of money and God is not sovereign in your heart and in your life, then there's something to work on. There's something to worry about. Right? Why do I say this? Because the, the world needs engineers, right? The world needs lawyers. The world needs teachers. Communities need every type of job. But the church needs Christians who are living with God as their sovereign ruler, not their paycheck, not their companies. And, you know, for the... I was um, watching the news, um, and I don't know what it is about this, this year, or maybe the past since maybe 2016, but it seems like the... Um, the luster of big tech has gone away for good. It used to be like, I, um, like Google, Facebook, Apple, they could do no wrong, you know? It's just like, oh wow, this is great, free lunch? No way. Uh, and there's like a movie, I actually was uh, on a plane and I watched this movie called The Internship about Google. Oh man, it was like, I was like, what am I watching? Is this like a Google movie <laughs> about how great Google is? No one will watch that movie today and think the same way. I don't know what happened, but here's the truth behind all of this. All of these companies, no matter how huge they are, no matter how wealthy they are, they're all going to fail one day. You just look back on the history of our country even, just 200 years. Think about um, what's, what's the one that really, Toys R Us. <laughs> oh, so sad. So sad. I remember in uh, Jersey, there's not much. In um, growing up as a kid, we had each other, and you know it was great. But in terms of material things, there was not much. <laughs> Often called New York's bedroom, but the um, there was this giant Toys R Us. From my point of view, my perspective as a small child, this giant Toys R Us, and I always remember it was blue. It was like curved, and uh, my sister's smiling. She knows she knows what I'm talking about. Um, the blue Toys R Us. Chris might know too. The blue Toys R Us. That's um, that's got this cool curved front facade, and it closed down. It's like, how could this ever close down, Amazon? How could this ever close down, right? Yeah, Amazon's going to close down too one day. Apple's going to close down too one day. They're all going to close down. Don't put your faith in these things. You can't. You can't do it. Things are incompatible. Some things are incompatible with the kingdom of heaven. Some things are incompatible. Why? Because of this. The kingdom of heaven has come near. You know, it would be okay if the kingdom of heaven stayed where it was, or if it was just somewhere else. But the kingdom of heaven has come near. In the Greek, it's in the perfect tense. Perfect means that it's done. It has come. The kingdom of heaven has come near. It's near now. And because it's near now, Everyone who hears this word, 
has to make a decision. They come to a point of choosing, are you in or are you out? Who do you believe in? Where do you put your faith? Where are you going to find your peace? And this nearness of God's kingdom refers not only to the coming of Christ at his first advent, Christmas, but also to the implication of Christ as Lord today, right? Is Christ Lord today? Because the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's near now perfectly. It's already here. Will you accept the rule of God in your life or will you live as your own king? Will you, will you live as God, as your sovereign? Or will you be your own sovereign? Throughout the gospel of Matthew, this is the sole message that is preached. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of heaven is where God is sovereign. It's where God rules. So when when it says come near, when Christ came to earth, he brought the rule of God to earth. He brought it near. You know, and as we look at the news, we know just from reading and watching the news that God's kingdom, although it's already here, it's not fully here. There's a difference, right? We still live in pain. We still live in brokenness. We still see the opposition to God's kingdom. But for those of us who believe, for those of us who repent, we get to taste the kingdom of heaven right now because it's already near. God can change lives. God can heal. God can restore and revive. He can change families. He can break generational sin and bondage. He can change communities. And that is the fruit of righteousness, the kingdom of heaven coming near. So what does that mean for us? We have to repent. We have to live lives of repentance. We do. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's drawn near. It's, it's all it boils down to. It boils down to repentance. Repentance is such a central part of our faith. And what's really amazing about repentance, the whole concept and ideal of repentance pre-assumes that you will make mistakes, that you will fall short. It's not that to be a part of the kingdom of God that you must live perfectly. No. No. But to enter the kingdom of God, you have to see how imperfect you are. And that's very easy for some of us. It's hard for some others. Whatever it is, repentance allows for mistakes. It allows for mistakes. And God desires for all of his people for all of his children to go to him when they make mistakes and to simply try again. So, in conclusion, during this week of Advent, I want you to reflect on the past year, 2019. Reflect on the past year. How have you lived in light of who God is? How have you lived? You can think in terms of quarters and seasons if it's easier. You know, in the spring, what was I going through? How was I living? In the summer, what did I do? What did I say? What were my relationships like? In the fall and winter, as it's just beginning, how have I lived in light of who God is? How have we lived as faithful ambassadors of God's kingdom? 
And lastly, no one is perfect. So we have to continually repent and draw near to God because the kingdom of heaven has already come and drawn near to us. So I want to give you some space and time right now even to start and begin this reflection. But I want to give this to you for this week, maybe this assignment for this week. Think about your past year as you're thinking about maybe New Year's resolutions, what you can do better in the coming year. Think about what, what you've done in the past year. You know, what are the highs? What are the lows? How have you lived for God? In what ways do you need to grow? Right? So during this week of Advent, reflect on the past year. Okay? Um, I'm going to invite the worship team up. And I want to give you this space to reflect. And as I give you this space to reflect, I'm also going to introduce the communion to us. Because when we think about Christmas, I don't want us to lose sight of why Christmas had to be, why Jesus had to come. He didn't come to rule right away. He came to die. He came to give his life up for us. And I don't know if when the first time you heard the gospel, um, but we try to preach the gospel every single week here at church. And even during a season of Advent, it is still about the gospel. So spend some time now in reflection. Ask God to search your heart. And when you feel ready, come and share this communion with all of us. On the night in which our Lord Jesus Christ was betrayed, he took the bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. After supper, Lord Jesus Christ took the cup. He said, this cup represents my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. Every time you eat the bread and drink the cup, you celebrate Christ's death and resurrection from now until he comes again at his second advent. So take this time to reflect and repent and receive God's forgiveness.